Mark chapter 1 is going to be the text for this evening. We're going to go over verse 9 to 13, but I'd like to read from the beginning of the book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazarene in Galilee and was surprised and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. Father God, thank you for again another opportunity for us to dive into your word. And Lord, may you help us focus, um, not just for tonight and hearing your word, but focus and being attentive and being mindful in how we live our life. Lord, we want to represent you faithfully in every avenue and every life stage that we're in. I mean, you use this message to allow us to, to behold you a little bit more than we did the day before. May that change us and conform us to be more like your son so you could receive all the glory. In your son's precious name, amen. I think it was like a year or two ago, I decided to subscribe to Audible. And uh, one of my intentions of uh, getting that app and subscribing to it was because I read a lot and I tend to, you know, I think sometimes my eyes are just exhausted from all the stuff that I need to read. So I decided, well, I want to still use my time, even my hobbies, to glorify the Lord. So how can I use my free time? And I thought, hey, Piper talks about using Audible as a way to hear different things and, and learn more about the world. So I thought, I'll do the same. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I subscribed to it, and I decided to figure out, you know, what, what's the point of this? How can I use this as a way to you know, enrich my own mind? And I thought it would be a fun exercise for me to listen through all of these presidential biographies, starting from the most recent president, all and going back, because I, you know, I'm a little bit older now, so I've gone through maybe four presidents, and I wanted to see what life was like and try to remember what my life was like uh, during that time as they're writing it. And then one of the most common things you'll see in every single presidential biography is when they talk about the inauguration. Uh, most of them, 
uh, that you know, have uh, wrote their own biographies, uh, their own autobiographies, they tend to just talk about that event as something that's very special and unique. And all of them uh, talk about all of this excitement and, and, and this hope and, and these promises that they made during their campaigns and how they feel is a great privilege to be able to represent and be the president of the free world. And all of them have this unique theme in that it is something that they take seriously. And, you know, for us as Americans, we, every four years or so, we see inauguration, and we, it is exciting to see. Uh, if you've lived long enough, you've seen, you know, you know what these things are. Um, but I think in terms of all these inaugurations, as great as it, as it is, if there's one person that I would love to see, it would be Jesus and how he was inaugurated as basically being the, the savior of the world. That's what we get to see here in this little passage in verse 9, uh, starting at verse 9. We get to see the inauguration of our Savior. This is the beginning of his ministry. And as we go through this text, we're going to just see two scenes. And, and like all sermons, every time we preach through a sermon, every time you hear a sermon, every time you read your Bibles, the hope is always that you love Jesus more that you know a little bit more about him, and that makes you a better follower of Jesus Christ. So as we walk through this text, I'm just going to look at these two scenes, and as we walk through those two scenes, I hope that you know a little bit more about our Savior so that you can love him more. So the first scene, we'll just call it the scene in the water, or Jesus in the water, verse 9 to 11. Verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth, from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this is, again, in a context where when it says in those days, I do think that this is around the time when John the Baptist was at the height and the peak of his ministry. Other Gospels state that it was probably a day later when Jesus came into the picture. But at this point, there is... John the Baptist is just famous at this point where people know, like, okay, he is the prophet of God. Even the people that are most skeptical, the Pharisees and different Jewish sects, they would, as much as they hated Jesus, they would acknowledge that there's something special about John the Baptist. And around this time, there were a lot of people that were just jaded towards Judaism, you know, whether it's the Pharisees who have created all of these different rules that are so binding and, and it's impossible to, to please the Lord, or it could be the, the, the zealots who, who are the Jewish sect that say, oh, let's just all unite and fight the government. And the people did not know the, how they could even be made right with the Lord. So people became jaded, and they heard about this man in the wilderness telling people to repent and calling out people like with the spirit of Elijah, and they wanted to hear him. Remember, at this point in history, it's been 400 years since the Lord spoke. 400 years they've been waiting for God's directive, and for 400 years God was silent. And finally, there is this one prophet that seems to be the forerunner to the Savior, and they all wanted to hear from him. And like we talked about last week, John the Baptist was baptizing all of these people, and they were all confessing their sins, acknowledging that they need a Savior, that they need someone to bring them to the Lord. And John the Baptist said it's not himself, he's not that, he's, well, there's going to be a person that comes after him. And this is where Jesus enters into the picture. It says that Jesus came, and this word came is something that we're familiar with. It's just this idea that he just came seemingly out of nowhere, but it is out of his own 
efforts. He made the decision at some point. We don't know how exactly, but he decided to go. And he's here in the Jordan. And it describes Jesus here as he's from Nazareth, which if for us, we only know about Nazareth because of Jesus. But in that context, no one expected anything good to come out of Nazareth. Nazareth, Because even John chapter 1, they said the same thing. Uh, There's a man uh, by the name of Nathaniel said, said to him, uh, to Philip, he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You Nazareth is it's just it's not known for anything. The only reason why it's famous is it is because of Jesus. But before that, no one could even imagine that the Messiah would come from there. This is a very, almost like a hick town kind of thing, very agricultural. And in our context, it would be saying like Fresno. Right, somewhere that no one really knows about. If you say, what's the f- name five cities in California? Fresno would not be up even in the top seven or ten. You know, it's not something that people think about when they think about California. And the same thing, when you think about where the Messiah would be or where he would come from, it is not from Nazareth. But yet Nazareth, this is the place where Jesus grew up. He was, you know, he grew up there. So all, you just imagine him playing with his siblings um, hanging out with his family, having all these different meals with his family, and spending time with neighbors. Jesus grew up there, sinless, and he was perfect. This was Jesus' hometown. And I do think that that's why Isaiah 53, when they talk about how lowly Jesus is, it's not just his physical appearance, although that is true. I do think even in the fact that where he's originated in the earthly sense, it's not something that people would think highly of. So this is a lot of ways to fulfillment of that. And it says he's from Galilee, which is a very pagan place. It's a very pagan area, and even the Jews did not like it. They have very low view of, of this area, and they have no view of Nazareth because it was not an important place for them. But yet Jesus came, and he was baptized here. Jesus did this because it's a really a sign that he identifies with the sinners. This isn't to say that Jesus needs to confess any sin. This is not to say that he needs to repent or anything like that. This is just his way to identify with the people that are going into the waters. He's saying, these are my people. And he does it because he knows that this is what's pleasing to the Lord. That this is the expectation of the people at the time. And Jesus is saying, I am one of them. And this implies that these people around him all deserve judgment except for Jesus. That's why John the Baptist was having these little arguments in the other Gospels, like, you know, I should not be the one doing this. You should be baptizing me. Because I would imagine Jesus visiting, I mean, John visiting Jesus in Nazareth, and he's like, oh, man, this is that perfect cousin, makes me look bad, and all the siblings, yeah, that guy always makes us look bad. He's always perfect. But this is what Jesus, uh, this is what Jesus did. Out of a faithfulness to the Lord, he chose to identify with sinners. Before Jesus walked on water, before Jesus calmed the waters, before Jesus even was able to summon fish out of the water, Jesus himself had to go into the waters. And this is, it says that he was baptized by John in the Jordan. This should be a familiar allusion to us because we're going through the book of Numbers. And in our Sunday service, we're going to start again this coming Sunday. And they're going to cross the Jordan. The Jordan was a symbol, a picture of the thing that you need to go through before you get to the promised land. And it's interesting that Jesus is here, almost signifying that like, you need to go to Christ in order to find paradise. 
But you notice this at baptize, and we said last week that baptism wasn't a sprinkle, otherwise Jesus didn't, would need to get into the Jordan, but that he would have to immerse himself into the water. And this was Jesus' way to identify with sinners. And for the Christians, for a then and now, when we do our baptism, it's for us to identify with Jesus. The first time when Jesus got baptized, or the only time when Jesus got baptized, is him identifying with sinners. And when we do baptism in our modern day, in, our, in the New Testament era, it's for us to say that we identify with him. And I think there are two extremes of baptism, two views, and the, the extremes where people take it too seriously or, don't, or they don't take it serious enough. The people that take it too seriously tend to think that they need to be super mature in order to get Baptized. They think they need to understand every area, every dot of doctrine, every little thing before they can enter the waters of baptism. But yet baptism is, wasn't supposed to be so complicated. It was supposed to be something very, very elementary. It's supposed to be that right when you become a Christian, your way of identifying with Jesus is to enter into the waters of baptism. Back in the early church, it was very bizarre when people called themselves Christian they were not baptized. Usually right the, the moment they become believer, they'll just go straight into the water. And I think in our culture, sometimes we take it too seriously because it's something that you only do once, which is true. You should take it seriously, but understand that it's not for the mature Christian. It's designed for those that are young in the faith. On the other extreme, there's those people that, that don't take baptism serious enough. There's those who take it too seriously and those who do not take it as, uh, as serious as they should. And there's some people that think, that, well, if salvation is by faith through grace, then I don't need to do anything for the Lord. I don't need to get baptized. I don't need to do that because why do I need it? Does, my, my salvation is not, deter, is not determined by baptism. I think that's a wrong view of it because, again, God does command believers to get baptized. He, he commands people to go baptized. That's why Matthew 28 tells them to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If, it was, if there was no obedience to it, then he wouldn't put that in there. Baptism is our way to identify with Jesus Christ. And then there's other people that maybe they don't, take it, they, they, they don't take it seriously enough in the sense that they get baptized over and over and over again. They, they become a believer, they get baptized once, they backslide and fall into a certain sin or the pattern of sin. They, they, they think, okay, I'm going to rededicate my life to the Lord, so I'm going to get baptized again. I think that's also not taking it too seriously because you understand that you don't need to get baptized again, you just need to repent. I think sometimes these two extremes, people get it wrong. Baptism is our way to identify with Jesus, and it's something that you just need to do once in your life. Romans chapter 6 tells us, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism, it's a symbol of identification that you belong to the Lord. That's why my wife and I wear different wedding bands. The wedding band is to signify to everyone else that my spouse belongs to me, that she is mine and I am hers. So 
find your own and leave mine alone. That's what the ring is supposed to symbolize, that you are not supposed to go near or flirt with my wife or flirt with me because I belong to my wife and my wife belongs to me. It's a signifier that we belong to each other. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is a signifying act that you're saying that you belong to Jesus, that you're united with him in Christ. So, does baptism mean, does that mean that we, I need to get baptized in order to be saved? Again, not getting baptized is not a sin. But not wanting to get baptized is a sin. It's an issue of obedience here. It's the most basic act that you're supposed to do. And if you don't want to get baptized, that is a sin. Now, I know that there are people in church history and people in the Bible that died without baptism. But, I, but I'm pretty certain that if they had an extra day or a moment that they can, they will get baptized. So it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of identification and obedience to the Lord. Verse 10, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. This word immediately is probably the most common word in the book of Mark. It's used 41 times or so, and we'll see it again in verse 12. But this is kind of like Mark or Peter's way of saying he seems to be more interested not so much in the teachings, but more like of the actions of Christ. It's a very, this book, it just goes from one scene to another very quickly. And he, he gets baptized and immediately coming out of the water. He saw the heavens opening. Now, it says here that in verse 10 that Jesus saw. And the other gospel, it, it, when you read it just as, as you might think that only Jesus saw this. And he's, he's, he, you might think, oh, well, only Jesus is the witness of the, the, the Spirit descending upon him and hearing this. But the other gospel testifies that that's not the case. The sky opened up. It was a booming voice. Everyone heard it. Everyone saw this. Uh, so it's not just Jesus seeing this, but I think he's just putting this because he wants to emphasize where the, he just wants to emphasize Jesus here. It said that when he saw this, the heavens opened. The heavens were opening. And uh, this word opening is interesting is because it's the word schizo. It's where the root word for things like schism or schizophrenia. It's this idea that you have, you're, you're torn apart. So when I was studying this, and even before when I was reading this, I was under the impression that maybe the sky was somewhat cloudy and kind of like the Lion King thing where, where, the, where Jesus got baptized into like this little hole in the cloud that the sun just kind of beams down on Jesus. But the more I think about this word here and how it relates to even other passages, I don't even think it's like that subtle because this word tearing, it has this idea of this very violently being ripped apart. And I don't think that this was a cloudy day and then all of a sudden the little sun goes through. I think it was a perfectly clear day because there's all these people there. And for some reason, right after when Jesus got out of the water, the sky ripped open. That there was something uh, unique about this. The reason why I say that is because in Mark chapter 15, the same word is used right after when Jesus died. And the centurion looked at Jesus and said, for surely he is the son of God. And then the temple, the veil in the temple ripped in half. This is the same word. And I believe Mark intentionally used this word here in the opening to make this allusion towards the end, signifying that there is something more to this. That when the sky opened up, it was something that was, was this outer experience that no one was familiar with. It's both awesome and terrifying. It's not something that is just slow and subtle. The word here is, again, it's this violent tear in reality. And, for, and when they see this, this thing in the sky, the, the, the Holy Spirit descended down. Now, if I was John the Baptist and I, and I saw this happening in front of me, 
the water around me will instantly change colors because it is a horrifying and terrifying scene to see reality ripped apart in the sky and you hear this voice and then you see the spirit descending down. And just remember that for 400 years, they did not hear a word from God. For 400 years, God was silent. And the first thing that they hear after 400 years is to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ, is to affirm who Christ is. This tearing and opening of reality in the sky is the inauguration of his own son's public ministry. And the tearing of the veil later is the completion of Jesus' work here on earth. And at this moment, when many saw this, they heard God the Father, and there was no way for any of them to ever get close to God. They could only see him from a distance. They can hear him. They can see what's going on, but they can never enter into his presence. But the moment when Christ died and the veil was torn, we now have access to the Lord if we place our faith in him. We must cherish our salvation Due to the Christ, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, we have now the ability to be reconciled with him, that we can at one day enter into that reality, into his heavenly courts. It is because of, of Jesus' body being torn apart, our wounds are healed. And after this, Jesus is affirmed by the Father. You notice that the spirit descends like a dove, and people debate on why is it a dove. I don't think a bird came out of the sky, because I think, I mean, some people think it's a, it's a dove because it's supposed to make you think back to the ark, uh, how when Noah was in there for 40, after 40 days, he, he let this dove out, and then the dove comes back, and it's this picture of the, that there's a new world now. And, people, and theologians and commentaries debate about this is signifying that Christ is going to bring in something new, that, the, that his kingdom is coming. Others believe that this is a sacrificial thing because the doves were used, were like the cheapest and the smallest thing to sacrifice. And they think that this is the inauguration of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. I actually hold to the view that this goes to creation. And the reason why that is is because we're descending uh, it's this idea of, of, of floating down. And the, the, the same picture is, is in the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, when there was nothing and there was this void and there's this water that said that the, whole, that the Lord was hovering or fluttering in the air. And I think that's what he's trying to get at here, that there's something triune about this. And the reason, reason why I say this is because in the next verse it said, And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity are active here. And it says, a voice came out of heaven. And it says, you, is a singular, you alone are my beloved son. This word beloved is this idea of, of, of the greatest prize and delight. There was this deep love that the father had for the son. Mark Chapter 9, verse 7, does the transfiguration. God the Father said the same thing again about Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, the beloved son is never used to describe anyone in the Old Testament except for one individual or one group of people. That is Israel. David was known as a man after God's own heart. Um, Abraham was known as God's friend, but only Israel as a nation is known as his beloved son. This is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. 
And we see that when Jesus is being called the beloved by the Father, Jesus is in a lot of ways is the perfect Israelite. He is going to do what every single prophet, every single king in the past has failed, every single Israel where they failed, Jesus is going to succeed. And this is something that we need to know that our God is a triune God. We worship of God, a God of love. And it's very easy for us to just look at this and skip over the fact that, that the before the foundations of the, of the world, that there is this perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, again, this is the first time he spoke in 400 years. And he's just telling everyone the, about this love that he has for the Son. God was silent. But the first thing that he says is about the Son being his beloved in the book of John, John uh, the, our Savior, Jesus, talks about, and he's really praying for his disciples. John chapter 17, verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfect in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these they and these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our Heavenly Father and our Son and the Spirit, there is this perfect love. Theologians uh, that, that try to debunk the Trinity, you find that in those type of religions, whether it's like Islam, their God is very distant from their people. But what makes the Christian God so unique, our triune God, is that before the foundation of the world, that there is this love for one another. There was an object of their love. That God is love, and his love is shown in each member of the Trinity. And what is so great about this, when that, in that John 17 passage, is saying that one day we will be able to experience that love. In our fallen day, in our fallen world, no matter how much you love your kids, no matter how much you love your friends, no matter how much you love your family, that love is imperfect. You will never be able to receive and experience perfect love until you enter into glory. That's when you will get to experience a love that the Father had for his son and has for his son, and he, we will be able to be recipients of that. What a joy it is that we worship a God of love. And he describes this son as someone that he's well-pleased. Well, how does Jesus prove this? Which gets to our second scene, that is Jesus in the wilderness. The first scene, we see this, this scene of Jesus in the water. Now we see Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 12, immediately, again, same word here, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now the same Holy Spirit that just descended and entered into Jesus Christ have now impelled the Lord and took him out into the wilderness. This word impelled is actually a very strong word. It's almost this forceful language of being driven out. It's actually the same word that Jesus would use later to drive out demons. So why is this here? 
Why is it that the Holy Spirit, if there are three in one, they have the same will? Why is it now that Jesus has moved to the wilderness? I don't think this is a different desire, like the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you got to go. And Jesus is like, oh, do I have to? And then the Spirit moves him. I just think that the Holy Spirit just, just brought him there because I think Christ wanted, needed to go. And the Holy Spirit is like, here, let me take you so that the people will not interrupt you. Because you just kind of move him in a supernatural way to the wilderness here. But why did he do this? I believe that he did this simply because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, tells us that he did this to undo the work of the devil, that he's going to go into the spiritual combat with the devil to show the devil that he cannot win and that all of his work is going to be undone because of what Jesus is going to do in his life and on the cross, the work of the devil is going to be completely ruined. He's in the wilderness here, and he's going to compete and go against the devil. Now understand that this is Jesus' way of proving that he is sinless. The devil and the Lord has fought since not long after creation. However you decide when did the devil uh, rebel at some point in the past, obviously before the world was made, that when there was this uprising in the, in the heavenly courts where the devil takes a third of the angels with him, and ever since then, there has this, is this war, this struggle between the devil and the Lord. And I do believe that the devil is so self-delusional that he actually believes that he can win. He is known as the father of lies, lies and the reason why he's that is not just that he's good at deceiving other people, but he's also self-deceived. This battle against the Lord is really the Lord... It's really, it's really the, the, the fight of the devil. He wants to be able to overthrow God's plan. He thinks that he's able to do it. Yes, he's caused all these other patriarchs in the past to fall into sin. Even David and Solomon, these great Israelites in the past, has fallen. Now he's going to think that I can do this to Jesus as well. This battle has gone on since the garden, and the devil won in multiple battles. But in this fight here, his arms are not long enough to box with God. There's never, a, there's never quite a battle like this for the devil. This is a war, and Satan wants to win, and he spends 40 days afflicting Jesus. Let's just think about 40 days. That's five and a half weeks. And the other gospel said that he was fasting and praying, and fasting doesn't mean that Jesus did not drink any water. Fasting usually just implies food. So Jesus did have water, and he, but in those times, that brought him to a very physically low state. It means he's very susceptible to temptation, and yet in those 40 days, he did not fall. Just think about in our life, when was the last time you gossiped about someone? Was it at least 40 days ago? When was the last time you thought negatively about someone, or you lusted after someone, or you told a lie? Was it 40 days ago? Or our Savior endured 40 days of just relentless fight, this relentless uh, onslaught from the devil. In a lot of ways, this is the match of eternity, and yet Jesus prevails. This shows us that Jesus is indeed in control of all things. This is the reality. There is a sense of reality when we think about all of this, that the Holy Spirit was one who moved Christ into the wilderness to be tempted and tested for 40 days. And there is a very difficult reality that, well, the problem of evil, when we think about that, like, is it God allows people 
even maybe move us into situations where our faith is tested. That's hard to swallow, but that is a reality. Jesus has been through it. Job has been through it. But how can that be? Like, is it God's fault? We know that God hates sins, therefore he doesn't, and even Scripture tells us he doesn't tempt anyone. But the Lord is sovereign over even the demons. So he will allow things like the demons to afflict us or to put in this put us in situations, circumstances where we are tested. But in the end, we know that God is in control. God will show us who and what we truly love the most. God sometimes will even allow demons to test us. And I think that when we think about the problem of evil and what the theologians call theodicy, it's really, we don't need to try to resolve it. But what we need to do is have resolve in our hearts to be faithful to the Lord. You don't need to try to figure out the problem of evil. What you need to figure out is how you can walk in obedience to the Lord. Because that's what Christ did. Right? Christ didn't have to sit there and contemplate, well, why this and that. He just was obedient to the Lord in every circumstance. He was faithful to the very end. And that's what we need to be as well. We have, a simp- we have a high priest that can sympathize with us. He understands our struggles. He understands how hard things are. But yet he didn't fall because he kept entrusting himself to the Lord. He was faithful to him even when he was at his lowest point. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Again, 40 days is a common number in the, in the scriptures. There's 40 days of flood. There's 40, Moses was, was, went to Mount Sinai twice to get the Ten Commandments and each time he was there for 40 days. So 40 days is a very common number in scripture. I think literally he was there for 40 days and he was tempted and this word tempted it may not seem that way in the English but in the original it's this idea of this continual temptation. It's there was no rest. Sometimes when we read the gospels especially in this this story here in this part of the gospel we think that Jesus fasted for 39.5 days and then the last .5 days he gets tempted three times and that was it. But that's actually not the case. Is for 40 days he was ten- tempted over and over, and there was all of this testing all around him. He was repeatedly being tested. And when we see the last three, those are really like the devil's final act. It was like his, his in using football terms, this was his Hail Mary. This is his final blow, his, 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 all that he has. He's using the less of the eyes, the less of the flesh, and the boast of prior life. This is the best he has to offer. And Jesus overcomes every single one of them. Jesus did not sin, even though the devil wanted him to sin. Satan believes that he can do it, and he believes that if Jesus can just fall in one area, then all of eternity is doomed. Like I said, this is the battle of all eternity here. It was nonstop for 30 days. And as I said here, and he was with the wild beast. And this is such a strange tidbit here because this is the only gospel that speaks that he was with the wild beasts in the, in the wilderness. And I think this is significant. Different theologians argue about this, and I hold to this view. And some people think that it's, it's a picture of, of God spending time with the animals, almost like Eden-like. I think it's 
kind of strange. It's kind of like when Snow White, when she starts hanging out with the pigeons and the deer and the rabbits, and she's like, oh, this is great. That's one view of this, but I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that when Jesus was with the wild beast that it was a pleasant time. This is the only gospel that makes this reference. Some, think, again, some people think it's like Eden. I think it's like anti-Eden because we're, he's living in the fallen world. This isn't a pleasant place to be. Eden was paradise. The wilderness was broken. Eden was a place that was teeming with life, where the wilderness was life-threatening and things were just dying all around him. Eden was perfect. Well, the wilderness, it was a place filled with predators. This was a situation that Jesus had to deal with. When he was struggling, it wasn't just struggling with those internal type things, the internal temptation, but he had to worry about the external things as well. Around Thanksgiving time, my kids had this mysterious bug infestation, and we didn't understand where it was from. Uh, it's probably from some of you guys. I'm kidding. Um, but they had these bug bites just all over him, and it infuriated my wife and I. We're like, what is this? Like, how are they getting into that? We, like, put clothes on clothes on them. We, like, put everything we can to stuff them so that they can't have any bug bites, but somehow it was, it was in their bodies. How did they, how did this creature go into the, through the sheets, into their clothes, and then bite them? And if you still look at our, the kids' room now, there's still traps everywhere. We're like, okay, well, we might as well just keep these traps up. And it took us a while, but eventually we figured out that there was these bugs that was living on them, these things called scabies. And I remember when the pediatrics said that, I thought she was just messing with me, but Kelly looked like, okay, no, she's, she's read this before. I was like, oh, I guess it's real. Okay, let's go. Like, what is it? What do we need to do? And they told us we had to put out this cream and, and, and wash your clothes relentlessly until that everything can go. Finally, we find out, yeah, in this case, now our kids are bug-free, so stay away from them. I don't want them to have your bugs. But I bring this up because Jesus had to deal with insects, too. It wasn't just like the wild beasts were like nice. These were lions that were willing to eat people. There were other like dogs that are wild animals that are willing to eat people. These are not pleasant. This wasn't a pleasant place to be. He had to endure the temptations that were coming from within or from the devil trying to make him feel certain things or deny or, or whatever that may look like. But he also had to deal with just the fears of things around him. The world was a fallen world, and he had to be faithful. He endured everything. And I think the second reason why this was here is that I think Peter and Mark, they were really trying to minister to the original audience. Think about the original people that were reading this. These were young, this was when the early church, 55 AD or so, it was not a popular thing to be a Christian. There were many believers that they knew that were fed to the wild beast. Back then in Roman time, they would starve the lions for a whole week. And when it was time, they would just put the Christians in there, unlock the cages, and the lions would go and just devour these Christians. And I would imagine that when you're, if you're a believer and you're seeing this, you understand when you read this text that Jesus understands your type of fear and suffering. Jesus was before these wild beasts. And, he, and I think Mark was trying to write this to encourage believers to trust in the Lord. If Jesus did not complain and entrust himself with the Lord, then we can do the same thing as well. People lived and they saw their friends and loved ones being torn apart, and I'm sure it shook a lot of them. 
And I, I don't doubt that some of these Christians early on have denied the faith because just hearing or seeing their fellow brothers and sisters in the faith being torn apart is too much for them. It's too much for them to bear, and they choose to bow to Caesar or whatever pagan god there was at the time. But when they read this opening portion of the gospel and they see that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was with the wild beasts, I'm sure that some of these people were repentant. They were emboldened. They were emboldened by the lion of Judah. They now have the boldness of a lion to face the lions that come from Caesar. And I think, that he, I think Mark wrote this to encourage the believers to know that we have a sympathetic high priest. Our God and our Savior is not aloof. It's not like the gods of the other religions that just make the world and just kind of step aside. Our God understands our pain because he entered into the world and lived this life for, for, perfectly for us. He understands how, how hard it is. And when we fail, he is a, such a gracious heavenly father, and he's a gracious son in that way. He's gracious to us because he understands. This isn't to say that you can go and sin and do whatever you like. Just understand that our Savior, whenever we sin, we can say, wow, Jesus went through exactly what we've been through, and he overcame it. And that should make us love him more because of how frequently we fall into sin. Jesus did not fall. He was faithful in light of how difficult the circumstance may be. For 40 days, he endured perfect holiness. He endured it. He, he kept it together. The scripture tells that he endured temptations, yet he did not fall. And this is where we can to love the Lord more, isn't it? Our Lord is going to place us at some point, I do think in not so distant future, where it's going to be hard to be a Christian. Again, just understand the totality of church history. It was, it's never, it, it, this time here in America, it's actually the exception. Most of the Christians that we know in the world, some of them even now are being fed to wild beasts. And I hope that when you look at this, this little verse here that you can see that Jesus has endured it and therefore we can as well. If we're called to be followers of Jesus Christ and we're called to emulate his life, that means we're called to be faithful as well. Jesus endured all of this. And it says here, and the angels were ministering to him. This is fascinating as well because what does it look like? None of the Gospels specify how these angels were ministering to him. But I think the really only clue we get is from 1 Kings where, I think 1 Kings chapter 19, I think, uh, when Elijah gets fed, the, the Lord is providential would bring these birds and he was able to be fed. I think that's what happened. After 40 days, after this entire ordeal was over, I think angels just gave, gave him food that he was able to just finally have food after 40 days and just continue on his ministry. By the way, the gospel of Mark is different from the rest of the two or other three gospels, or at least in the temptation account. The other account speaks of those three temptations at the very end, how he overcame every single one of them. The gospel of Mark is the only one that doesn't say that there's some sort of definitive outcome. I think the reason why that is, is because it implies that although our Savior endured 40 days of this, that the battle isn't over. We sometimes assume that the temptation was only here, but understand that that's actually not the case. This was just the most difficult part, the 40 days in the wilderness. 
because you know he he didn't who didn't have food or anything like that, and he was alone. But our Savior was still tempted throughout his entire ministry. The last three years of his life, I'm sure it was not easy. There was temptations all around him. I mean, some of his fellow disciples and other followers have denied the faith. But Jesus would remain faithful all the way through. I think Mark intentionally left that out to encourage the believers to continue to press on. That our Savior, again, he's not, he is not a God that's distant. He understands us. He understands our suffering. He understands our pain. And it's because of that we can adore and love, and love him more because we have a God that at this point, he's interceding for us. He's done so much in the past in his earthly life and on the cross, but he's still doing something for us. He's still that great high priest for us now and standing between us and the Lord and, and pleading and interceding with the Lord. And when the, the accuser, the devil, saying why this person should not go into heaven, our Savior is the one that's making our defense. Our God is a God that works for his people. And why? It's because he loves us. We know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is why in verse 11, God calls him his beloved son. I do believe that the Lord knew that this was the outcome and he's very pleased with him because of it, because of his faithfulness, how even in the waters of baptism, he didn't need to get baptized, but he did it because he wanted to identify with those sinners, those undeserving sinners. And in the wilderness, how he endured every form of temptation and struggles, not just in that instant, in those 40 days, but also throughout his life. The Lord knew this, and this is why he's pleased with him. Jesus was faithful in every sense of the word. And I know that if you believe in Jesus, if you place your faith in him, he will one day call you his beloved, and you'll hear it audibly from him. But the reason why you have that has nothing to do with your own achievements here on this earth was because of what Jesus has done. When you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at these instances in, in the four Gospels, it should make you love him more. The fact that he's gone through so much for us so that we can be with him in glory. Let us go close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you for all that you've done in our life, all the things you've done in your own life. Have you lived perfectly, sinless? Lord, we'll never fully grasp that reality of what it's like to not fall even for a second. Lord, we confess our sin to you knowing that it is a regular pattern in our life and yet you're so gracious and so kind and forgiving us over and over again and continually to bless us and sustain us even though the only thing we deserve is judgment. Lord, I hope that as we meditate on your word this weekend and every single day, Lord, that the things of this world and the temptations of the world will become abhorrent because they are offensive to you. Lord, may we not desire the lust of the eyes or lust of the flesh or the boast of pride of life. May we desire you more than anything. Lord, may you work in all of our hearts. May you become greater in our minds and our hearts. May we see you 
more clearly because of what you've revealed in your word. Illuminate our hearts, sanctify our lives, Lord. In your son's precious name, amen. Really, the two questions we have today are related to our message. You know, as you go into your group, uh, how does knowing the Spirit move the Son to testing help us when we, are, we encounter different trials and testing? And second, how is having a sympathetic high priest helpful for us in our sanctification? Um, if you don't know what that word means, it basically means growing into more like Jesus Christ.